Waminjika and welcome everyone to M Pavilion, which is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation. I feel like I haven't got quite the right attire to be welcoming everyone. Uh, my name is Natalie King and I'm the senior curator of the Pavilion. We acknowledge the Bunwarung as the traditional custodians of the land <coughs> on which we meet and we extend that uh, welcome to other Aboriginal people present here this evening. Tonight we continue our Tuesday evening conversations at the intersection of architecture and design with an illustrious veiled lineup, courtesy of RMIT Design Hub. And we're thrilled to be uh, continuing our association with comrades at the Design Hub. Tonight's uh, conversation is on the eve of the launch of Brooke Andrews' new commission, De Anima, which is opening on Friday night at the Design Hub. And it's also presented in tandem with a live performance on Saturday night from 6 till 7.30 um, in the pavilion with some of our panellists. I do hope you can join us. Um, I'd also like to uh, tell you a secret. And tonight, uh, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra will be performing in the pavilion a secret symphony at 9.30 and at 10.30pm. So please uh, stay and join us. Um, the dialogue tonight will be uh, moderated by Kate Rhodes and Fleur Watson, who are both from RMIT Design Hub. Uh, Fleur Watson is a curator and former editor of Monument. She writes regularly on design for the Saturday paper and recently co-curated the exhibition Las Vegas Studio and the Future is Here, both at the Design Hub as well as the architecture installation Sampling the City for the National Gallery of Victoria's Showcase Festival, Melbourne Now. Fleur is co-moderating with Kate Rhodes, who is a also a curator at RMIT Design Hub. She has been creative director of the State of Design Festival and curator of its Design for Everyone program. She has worked as adjunct curator at Object, Australian Centre for Craft and Design, and as editor of Artichoke, an architecture and design magazine. Please welcome our panellists. Maybe we can deveil now. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. And I might just do a quick bit of housekeeping before we start. I've just realised that actually I'm cutting off everyone on this side of the room. And because we want to keep this as a conversation between the panel here and we want to talk to each other as much as we want to talk to you, if everyone doesn't mind maybe shuffling over a little bit or just moving into some of these right, empty seats go. at the front. There you go. I'll the use my microphone, that will help. <laughs> I've just been saying, if everyone would just mind maybe shuffling over here a little bit, as I realise I'm going to cut you off and I would like to, we would like to run this as a conversation amongst the panel as much as we would with all of you. So please do come forward, come in close. As Natalie said, my name is Kate Rhodes and I'm one of the co-curators at the Design Up here with Fleur Watson. We will bookend this illustrious panel. Here with us tonight we have Brooke Andrew, the artist who's been involved in um, leading the project, Gianima, who has made the work along with his collaborators here, Theodore Wong, the composer of the music that you heard while we were sitting here in our veils, in which we will refer to later. Mama Alto, who is the singer, one of the singers in Dianima and Justin Shoulder, a performer in Dianima. They all have individual practices, they all bring a fantastic amount of background, knowledge, um, practice research and thinking to Dianima and this is what we're going to unpack today. 
At the Design Hub, we are a place of design research, of exhibiting, making, critiquing design in all of its phases. In our Design Hub galleries, we like to unpack things, not always when they're finished and made with a bow on top, but before that, when a designer first thinks of an idea, brings that to us. We like to put that into the gallery to bring ideas and audiences together to crack them open, to ask questions of them. And so we want to bring that philosophy here to this talk tonight, to crack open and unpack Deanima for you with everyone who is involved. We are here in a way without the core thing that we are discussing. We are talking in the absence of Deanima in one way. We don't have the visuals. Deanima is a three-channel video work. But we have all of the amazing people components of Deanima and that's what we want to explore with you tonight. So as I said, Deanima is a three-channel video work. It's also a work with neon, with objects, with a living archive uh, and with a series of veils. Um, and maybe this is a, a, um, a place to leap from, Fleur. I think so. I think what, what I'd like to do now with Kate and the panel here is to start with Brooke and to talk a little bit about Deanima, which, of course, had its first iteration in Bendigo. And we've been working over quite a few months now and particularly very intensely in the past couple of weeks at Design Hub with those specific spaces of the project room. I wonder if you could talk, Brooke, a little bit set the context for Deanima and how we've progressed to where we're about to open. And maybe I'm just diving before Brooke even gets a chance to answer that question oh. by saying we <laughs> want to keep this as a very live, open, lively conversation. So please dive in if you have a question. Put up your hand or just yell it out or if you feel bold and you can get out of your chair, go and stand in front of that microphone over there. <laughs> but really we would like to keep this very open and free-flowing. So if you do have a question or a <coughs> query or you can't hear something, please just let us know. Brooke. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm really thrilled that Benny, Justin and Theodore are here because they're all in different parts of the world recently. And thank you, Fleur and Kate and also Natalie and, and Pavilion and everyone who's here. Thank you all for coming. Um, so I was one of um, a few very lucky artists um, who were uh, um, selected to be um, granted a Catherine Hannay commission, which is a very significant commission, um, which really is the reason why Deanima was made. Um, and it's that was originally part of the cinemas project, which included um, more than one artist and in different sites around Victoria, which Bridget Crone curated. And uh, the first part of Deanima was at Bendigo Regional, uh, no, it's not regional, Bendigo Art Gallery. And um, it just had two channels. So when it um, I approached uh, Fleur and Kate to specifically really work on um, Deanima and create um, it into its its fullest capacity that I really wanted it to be. Um, it, it was added a third channel, so it's now a three-channel work and also um, uh, three installations and also um, working with um, both uh, Mama Alto and, and Justin again in creating performance. And, of course, with the textiles and design. Yeah. So just yeah. to step back a moment. So can we paint a picture for everyone here who hasn't seen the work, who doesn't know exactly what it is that we're talking about? Can you paint a picture of what Design Hub looks like right now and a little bit about Deanima? It's a... Uh, so there's a 50-metre wall. So those of you who yeah. know Design Hub downstairs is a very long gallery. 
Um, and it has a, a horizon of neon. So if you can imagine tracing a, a landscape, a horizon um, of coloured neon with eight projections of different films, which are source films from my archive. So I have, I have uh, an archive that includes um, Super 8 um, film, 16mm, 12mm, etc., but also cultural objects, postcards, photos, etc. And um, the I think there's about 12 films though on the eight different projectors which I've used as part of the archive to create the film um, De Anima. So the, so the whole idea was to show the source material. And so this, when I create installations and I work with museum collections, etc., and mix my own works with those collections, I often show the source material. Um, and so you get an opportunity to see the source mater material in its fullest because within De Anima there might be maybe only a two second up to a, like maybe a four second um, snippet of the film because the De Anima is actually kind of it's it's quite um, how would you describe it um, immersive immersive Incredibly and immersive. Quite, quite erratic um, and then there is another uh, installation of objects that include some of the some objects that Mum also Theodore and also Justin bought along to add to my archive, so there's a, a, a showcase or kind of a vitrine um, with these objects in it, um, and some other neon and some original slides, uh, glass lantern slides from the late 1800s from uh, two photographers, um, J. W. Beatty and Stephen Sperling from Tasmania, and this was really the kind of idea where the landscape came from, the way they photographed Tasmania but we can talk a bit more about that later. Mm. And then you have the three f films. Yeah. And what's been so wonderful, I think, in, in the process is this kind of playful quality that we have been working through and the idea that we've been able to really experiment in those spaces. And Brooke has, been, has brought in his archive. We talked about that long project room two, which is the smaller space those have been to Design Hub, the more compressed, very long 50-metre corridor. <coughs> and this incredible site-specific work that's developed in those spaces. And then moving into the project rooms together, working through your material and just watching you compose those and draw from your archive to tell these, these narratives that are really starting to talk about the connection between the original work, De Anima, um, with the three channels now, and those narratives that are getting pulled out through this living archive. I wonder if this is a, a good point um, to perhaps hear a little bit of music yes. now and then ask Theodore to talk about the composition. Let's, let's have it up and uh, listen nice and loud.
So, Theodore, you speak about really in the catalogue text, yeah. taking the title as a starting point mm -hmm. and also creating these building blocks of ideas. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, sure. Um, Brooke first mentioned the project to me in May 2013, and I spent, I spent one year traveling, and um, so I, I didn't get back to Australia until February in 2014. I only had two weeks to write the score. And at that time, you know, the film was uncut, and um, I, didn't, I only see fragments of the footage, and I only worked with um, photographs, and text and also conversations with Brooke. So, you know, I work with those small building blocks and all good artists are good storytellers and <laughs> Brooke is a great one, so that helped a lot. Sorry, I was going to say, so for everyone who doesn't know, Dianima means on the soul, from Aristotle's text, on the soul, translates to, in Latin to Dianima. And Theodore, you talk really nicely about this idea of the soul as this incredible complex, of course, idea but also perhaps thing almost think, talking about it in an yes, object um, sort of way and that you grapple with this thing and you try to make a piece of music that can grapple with the idea of yeah, the soul um, in our soul's text um, he mentioned the soul is the actualization of potentialities so all, all living things there's a potentiality and so is how you cultivate this potentiality in all, type, in all form of possibilities so um, and with the film I see as a um, a cartography of some kind of subcultures of the 20th century history and little fragmented um, you know, footage and um, those archival historic documentations and it's kind of schizophrenic in nature it's very chaotic it's like a chaos in some way so I thought to respond to that I need to create my own type of chaos and each fragment of the composition has its own compositional technique. So it's, it's, there's tonal elements, there's atonal, there's chromatic, there's elitoric, and music concrete has different techniques. And through that, I built those building blocks mm. in response to that, um, to that film. And Brooke, you talk about, I remember you talking about being in the studio with Theodore and it almost like digitizing the composition or creating this cosmos within the competition, um, within the composition, rather. Can, can you talk about that process between the two of you in sure. more detail? I mean, I think it was, um, as Theodore said, it was in sections, and then I would visit, and um, the original, especially two photographs, were from Tasmania, but it was clearly about the representation of nature that was confined within a very male Western historical um, view, i.e. The, the horizon line that's in painting and then when photography was invented, of course, it appeared in that as well. And so that was something that I think that Theodore launched off into. And the interesting thing about that is that the, mu the, the composition was created before the edit. And so the whole three channels of Dianima were edited to the music, to the composition. It wasn't the other way around. And that also included when Mama Alto, um, we taped, uh, you know, recorded Mama Alto's four songs. And so then Theodore came in again and, and helped lay that over the top. Mm. Maybe that's a good moment to leap into Mama Alto. And maybe, Mama, could you tell us about the four songs that you sing in Dianima, some of the really lovely background that you've been telling us uh, about? Definitely. So um, 
When Brooke um, asked me to be involved in the project, I looked at this idea of the soul and then also looked at Brooke's other work, which I've been following for a while, and the way that Brooke um, really cleverly uses archival and museological material to disrupt colonial authorities um, and to take away the power from colonisers and give it back to marginalised peoples. Um, and so I was looking at... Um, my own practice as a singer, um, mostly as a cabaret and jazz singer, and then also looking at my own ancestry from Java, which was colonised by the Dutch for over, you know, about 300, 400 years. Um, so I was looking, where is my in inroad into understanding and unpacking and contributing to this project? Um, so I was looking at On the Soul, this idea that all of the animals and, and people have the soul or the life force. And then in all of the film footage that Brooke has, you see many different animals, insects, many different ethnographic films of people from around the world. And included in one of those films, which Brooke sent me as a stimulus material, the film's called The Blonde Captive. It's from the 1930s. They go on quests to find the most primitive people in the world. And they visit Java, where my people are from. So I was looking at my grandmother, um, who is a an indigenous Javanese woman in Indonesia during its occupation by the Dutch. And I was looking at the songs she sang because as a singer that seemed logical to me. This is how I'm going to approach this material. So I, I interviewed my father a lot about his mother and the songs that she sang. He only remembers her singing one traditional Javanese song, which was a lullaby called Nino Bobo, right? Um, which sounds a little bit like this, I guess. I guess I should give a little snippet. So it kind of croons like that. It's very lilting. It's a lullaby. Um, and as a lullaby, it's kind of seen inoffensive. Um, so they were still allowed to continue singing that even underneath the, underneath the colonists' control. So even though the Dutch were there and preferred them to sing other songs, they could get away with singing lullabies to their children. Um, but what the colonisers didn't realise, and which is interesting about that song, the lyrics translate to, um, we have to go to sleep now or the mosquitoes will bite us and we will die of malaria. But Nina, the child named specifically by name in the song, was the daughter of one of the Dutch governors. So it was actually a very subtle act of, of resistance and subversion. Um, the second song, which was one of the songs my grandmother sang, um, Pokare Kareana, which some of you might be familiar with. Pokare Kareana, It's actually a Maori song, and it was popularised, um, especially during World War I, all across the Pacific and all across the islands where you could go on, um, you know, you could go on tours, you could go on Kontiki tours and see the natives and they would trot out and perform for you in their grass skirts. And this is the song that they would sing when people came to the village and hopefully give them some money. Um, and it was just this pan-Pacific, um, interchangeable brown bodies kind of tourism. Um, and so my grandmother was made to sing this song um, because it was pleasing and inoffensive to the colonial ear because it didn't contain any, any valuable cultural knowledge in the song. It didn't have any traditions for her. And so it became her go-to song later in her life. If she was cleaning the house or just going to the market or just humming a tune, she would sing that song. 
but she, she lived until she was 90 and she died still not knowing what the words meant because it wasn't her language, it wasn't her song. So I was beginning to trace with these songs um, in a very micro way these big, big effects of colonialism and authority on knowledge and meaning, which I felt was beginning to go towards the direction Brooke takes ethnographic materials and disrupts the colonial narratives. Um, so the next song that I sang, I don't think I'm going to sing any of it now because I hate it. Um, <laughs> Come on. It's, it's a Dutch reform Protestant hymn. Go on. And, um, Give us a tune. It's very obnoxious, I warn you, because it's that kind of, it was made in the 1590s as a Dutch hymn. Wild heden, nutreden, forgotten here. It's all about the glory of the Dutch and God's come to look after them in the civil war that they won to free themselves from um, occupation by the Spanish. So to me it was particularly disgusting that then they arrive in another nation, they invade and occupy another nation for 400 years and make the natives convert to this religion of theirs and sing this song about how they themselves were freed from occupation. <laughs> so, um, but that being said, um, my grandmother was a devout Dutch Reformed Christian um, and that's partly how she came to be singing because she was one of the lead singers in her church. Um, and they had segregated churches during her time. Um, they had the Dutch and the Javanese separate. But so that's, that song is the peak of colonial power over her. And then the final song in this cycle that I sing is one that I sing in my own artistic practice as a cabaret and jazz singer, Summertime, um, from Porgy and Bess, but not the way that it's notated in Porgy and Bess. Because um, what I find interesting about a lot of the jazz divas, a lot of people think that they were people who just sang pretty songs. Um, people like Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Sarah Vaughan, Carmen McRae, Lena Horne. But actually, if you, if you analyse um, in a musicological way what they're actually doing, just by being who they were and by singing and reinterpreting songs, especially when they took songs and transformed them through the jazz idiom, they were decolonizing these stories and taking back um, authorship over their own voices. Um, and that's partly why I became a singer, because when I was younger, um, I didn't see that many um, people of colour who were role models in the mainstream media, especially in Australia. Um, if you were looking for someone who was glamorous and positive and an uncompromising author of their own story instead of being cast by people as you know, almost in piccaninny kind of way as maids and grocery store owners who can't speak properly and, and can't read and that kind of thing. Um, there was Oprah and there was Lee Lin Chin and that was kind of it. Um, and then in my dad's record collection, cassette collection, were all of these amazing jazz singers. So um, I put that to kind of complete the cycle as something that linked to my own practice and also as something that is a subtle act of decolonization by women who often are cited as the influence for many activists. Um, people like Maya Angelou would talk about when they met Billie Holiday and Lena Horne and how what they were doing with their songs was in a way liberating that consciousness. So that's uh, Let's hear that's it. Summertime <laughs> and living is easy Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. 
More, 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 more. Your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking. So hush, little baby, don't you cry. So that's this um, four-song cycle inspired by my grandmother that uh, was my contribution to Danima and all of the extensive reasons for that. I think that's what's been so wonderful for us in this process is Design Hub is all about, I guess, this cross-disciplinary collaboration and also this ability to reflect upon one's own practice and to kind of mine it and understand it from one's own personal set of knowledge and to bring that as new knowledge and share it with others. So the idea of of research is never fixed. It's always shifting and changing and it's based on one's own expertise. And I think, um, Justin, this would be a great point to bring you into hearing about how you responded to these other three collaborators and obviously particularly working with Brooke and what you brought from your own knowledge and practice into the into the project. Okay. Um, hi. Um, <laughs> I guess I should describe my practice at first because usually it's kind of hard to frame. Uh, I guess I'm an interdisciplinary artist working in performance, sculpture, and video-based work. Um, I describe the stuff I do as the creation of mythopoesis, which is the creation of mythologies, um, including their geographies, detailed worlds, biology. Um, But it's not completely fantasy. The idea is that it's linked to, I guess, like a lineage of queer performance or my Filipino ancestry. Um, And within, I guess, uh, the canon of mythologies, I'm particularly interested in uh, legendary creatures. Um, They've existed for millennia since the composite entities like the Sphinx to the preternatural vampire we're live in <laughs> pop culture today. Um, and this is a practice I've been doing for the last seven years, um, inventing my own, I guess, avatars that I perform initially in club-based work, um, in very presentational-style club performance within, um, I guess, the queer community. I mean, that's where I started in Sydney. Um, and I guess... That's a good point to start for my contribution. I was interested in how um, all these materials that Brooke works with, um, he reframes the way that uh, people and animals um, and different identities are captured. And I was interested in creating a figure that resists capture. So I have a family of stick insects that lives at home. they are phasmids. Uh, phas- phasmids comes from the Greek phasma, like phantom. Um, we talked a bit about a recurring motif in Brooks' work being the trompe l'oeil, so the trick of the eye. And so I was interested in how I could create a figure that is its own form of deceit through gesture, but also through the craft narrative of the creature. Um, I've been working on a series of figures called the Sissies. It's a family of beings. Um, uh, They are uh, femboy elemental spirits. Um, Their initial story came with that they accessorised from junk they found on the beach. But this particular 
Sissy is a lunar figure. Um, oh yeah, I'll, I'll show you in a sec. I, ge I guess I was also interested in how I could, because I'm, I work a lot with craft, um, how I could literally embed the sculptural elements in the ecology of the work. So we worked with the uh, canvas from Brooks Gunmetal series. Is that correct? Is that the island? And the island, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll put them on. <laughs> it's actually a, a full costume. Those of you who, who have seen it know what we're talking about because you've seen it. Um, otherwise, you'll see it Friday night or Saturday um, if you come along. But it's a full embodied costume. Um, and if, if we're lucky, um, Justin might even put on the headpiece like the face mask and the head, at least you, you'll have some immersive understanding of, of that aspect. And also the costume that um, Mama Alto wears is also one of my canvases. It's a large gold canvas from a recent work called Australia. Um, so in some ways, materially, they're both wearing um, similar costumes, I suppose. Materially, um, and it's a. This is a screen print and paint on uh, Belgian linen. Can everyone hear Justin? Okay, maybe Justin, if you could just yell <laughs> as loudly as you can. Okay. Um, because I was because we were talking about this deceit and the trick of the eye. I wanted the form to draw directly from the site we filmed at initially, which was Macedon Rock. So I was looking at the, I guess, the natural rock formations. It's, it's igneous rock, so it's um, rock formed by the cooling and heating of magma and lava. So, I mean, that also informs the choreography of the work. Um, I guess that links to the choreography. I, I'm, a tra I'm not a trained performer. Um, I, work, I work pretty instinctually, but... Um, I've been working, I guess the inroad for the gestures is looking at insects, looking at phasmids, um, how um, different animals respond to threats, so a posematic and daematic um, behaviour. So when things like stick insects or moths or octopus are threatened, um, they do particular behaviours um, to amplify their form. I mean, everything I do is about um, resisting a resistance or resisting dominant narratives. So I wanted to create a figure that resists being captured by the gaze. Um, it it shapeshifts through many different forms. Um, yeah. This is the <laughs> like me right now. <laughs> it's not really illustrating it. It's much more spectacular no. than this. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, Justin will be performing at the opening this Friday. Yes. So you can, you can see him in full performance wearing the costume. Yeah. But Justin, maybe do you, want to, do you want to talk a little bit how all of that sort of background, those themes relate to Deanima? When you derobe. <laughs> so when I... When I was thinking about Deanima and because uh, I work a lot with um, 
figures that aren't human. I wanted to represent a, I guess, the non-human counterparts um, and their, I guess, uh, resi resistance of being uh, categorised. Um, so to call something sissy um, is to resist, I guess, gender categorization. Um, and so I guess that was my inroad. Um, it's an interface to the soul to, I guess, natural energies, as well as, I guess, th this figure also draws from, I guess, more laterally from an, its sister, which is this... Sissy Cyclo, which is um, a figure that comes from my Filipino matrilineal line. Um, its form draws from the jeepney and the typographic forms of the jeepney, which my grandfather drove. Um, so I guess, like, laterally, that's its connection. Um, and all my work, the idea is to encourage a sense of an accord with nature. And I guess, I guess that's one of the ideas in Dianama is to consider ourselves part of an ecology, not the centre of mm -hmm. of something. So, like, this, yeah. Oh, we have a question. Good. Could you, sorry, okay, I so I'm just going to gonna repeat think, the question. I think you might have to the go question to the here microphone. is, what is a phasma? <laughs> a phasmid. Oh, yeah, so phasmids are the family of stick insects. It's, it's like the, um, not the genus, but it's the, yeah, it's a phasmid. It's another name for stick insect. It comes from phasma. It sounds much cooler, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> phasma, phasmin, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Did everybody hear that question? Resisting being yeah. captured by the gaze. Um, I guess because the figure, at when you see the performance, um, it's really difficult to position where the head is, where the arms are. Um, and through its movement, I guess it's, yeah, so you can't quite make out its form. It's not quite human. It's not quite a landscape. It's not quite an insect. Um, I guess resisting categorization maybe is a better way of framing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just to maybe um, put it into context for the whole narrative of how Deanima came about, even if it, in its current form. Um, you, you know, the whole idea was, what is the spirit? And, you know, is a Western notion of the spirit, i.e. what was grappled with by the Greeks or certain Greek philosophers and how we embody that today, how we are quite obsessed with it, even through architecture, Greek architecture, Roman architecture. I mean, the influence of that on us today. Um, and therefore, what is the spirit? Is it a Christian thing? Is it a Western thing? Is it a is it an indigenous thing? I mean, how do we capture the spirit? Are we really at, at our full capacity? And therefore, how are cultures captured the gaze? If we talk about the gaze, which Justin I think is referring to, it's about capturing the gaze. It's about you know um, people who are seen as primitive in history, and so the legacy of anthropology and uh, you know superior of civilization. These are all the things that we're grappling with. And I think that when Theodore tackled this and launched it out of the earth into the cosmos was a complete relief. And that's where um, I think that um, CC Satellite really picked it up because the, apart from the, the archive footage that I've used um, in Dianima, we also shot on site. So where there is, uh, I forgot to mention this, there is newly shot footage um, 
at um, Hanging Rock, where, of course, Picnic at Hanging Rock was set, um, at the Messerton Ranges. And so, in some ways, you know, Theodore launched it into the cosmos. Um, Mama Alto brought it back to the gaze of, you know, the position of who is being looked at and unpacking that. And then Justin's character was really kind of like, we call it CC Satellite, because not only are you avoiding being captured, it was also we had these fantastic stories happening on site about how CC Satellite was actually... Um, the one that was the creature or the spirit that couldn't be captured, that we think that we see, that we can't capture, that that is the true spirit. And we are just trying to be that. So it's, it's, so it's, so it's not so fixed mm. in that narrative. And maybe even a step back from that, it might be interesting to talk about. In the catalogue, we talk about the discussions that happen with Witness, one of your earlier projects at the Lion House Museum. And, and some people in the audience might have seen that particular project. Can you talk about some of those discussions and how they then informed Dianima in in what was essentially a transition into a video work? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of my practice has been about trying to understand the world we're in and why certain categories are fixed to certain people or cultures and why they they slide for some more dominant cultures and they don't slide. They're all they're immovable for for others, and so. I think that with Witness it was really kind of subverting that. So you have, you know, this Liverpool, uh, this building that's in Liverpool in the UK, which is very much based on um, uh, a Greek um, uh, building. And so, you know, especially the Europeans, of course we all know this, they rebuild the same buildings or, you know, they rebuild... Um, um, architecture that is based on Egyptian architecture because it's seen as the pinnacle, you know, the most civilised, etc. You know, the narrative. Um, and so there's one, um, I suppose you would call it a diptych, in the witness work, which has two Amazon men. The photos taken about 1905, um, and they're quite massive, and they're kind of like gods, I suppose. Um, and they're standing on this building. So for me, it subverts that. And I think that's this kind of narrative that um, that uh, Mama Alto was talking about before, that um, Justin kind of talks about bringing in your own narrative and, and how it kind of defies being captured by the gaze. And the reason why that we use that being defied by capturing the gaze is because if you come along and you see some of these ethnographic films, they're incredibly um, not only... Okay, the narration is just stupid. You've got this quasi, you know, American anthropologist um, from 1931 travelling around the Pacific and finding themselves in Australia to find the Anderthal Man. And not only is it just ridiculous, but the gaze, the way in which that the woman's body is captured as well, um, as in the native woman's body is captured, um, is quite, uh, you know, it's quite confronting. And intrusive, isn't it? Yeah, it's very intrusive, yeah. But if we think about how we see and how we look today, we've inherited all of that, regardless of your cultural background, because the dominant... I, my argument is that the dominant Western narrative still perpetuates that. I think that this might be a nice moment to actually draw in our one collaborator, actually, who isn't here physically, but who's here yes, in um, collaborative spirit... Um, Natalie Kielitner, who is a graduate from the School of Fashion and Textiles at RMIT. Okay. Um, she worked with Brooke to create a series of veils, which we encourage you to wear when you're viewing the exhibition at the Design Hub. And 
these really have quite an interesting impact. Obviously, when we're sitting here and you're not veiled and we are, you're looking at us, we look quite strange. But in terms of the material that Brooke's talking about, some of the very, you know, they're really full on images in terms of, um, you know, there's, there's ethnographic films, there's a, 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 a pornographic film from the 1960s, there are images of people being shot. There's a torture of animals. There's some really confronting imagery in Brooks' archive. And in a way, the veil creates a really interesting space in the sense that although you are being looked at when you're wearing a veil, um, it also gives you a space to hide. It gives you a space to have, in a way, your own private emotions and reaction to the films. Your, that little bit of cover over the face, over the body, flares donning it beautifully. Um, <laughs> it um, provides an interesting... Um, Space, extra space, uh, extra dimension to the way that we experience the work, but also perhaps to the way people experience us while we're all viewing the work together, and a place to hide in some ways. So we've found it, um, yeah, creates an, creates an interesting layer. And I think the veil's really, uh, again, embedded in what we're always trying to do at Design Hub, and, um, and Brooke really took this on and... Um, really embraced it and started, it started with a workshop from Fashion and Textiles which was um, instigated by Robin Healy um, who we worked very closely with at Design Hub. Um, Ricarda Bigelin then ran a workshop with fourth year students and they developed a series of prototypes and then with one student in particular, Natalie... Keylightner. Thank you. Um, Natalie has just been incredibly uh, engaged and working with Brooke and also a conversation with Kate and myself and in the space, developing these veils into um, these, these kind of iterations. So it has been a truly collaborative process and one that we're always trying to find ways with the exhibitions that we do at Design Hub to drive them back into our research community so that we can all have this exchange. Mm. And again, this idea I think felt really apt with Brooke's work that we weren't looking at this from a fixed perspective. It was always shifting and changing right up to the very end, really, wasn't it, Brooke? How did, how did you find that process? What well, it's was a very, your experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like being in a big studio, <laughs> moving things around. You know, it's, um, I think I, in our interview I say, you know, we don't have the anxiety of exhibiting in a private gallery or something like that. It's very much process-driven. And um, even when... Eric and the others brought up some things on, the, on a trolley. We snaffled the trolley to be part of the <laughs> process because it is about this living archive where things are being pushed around. Um, and we decided not to put a glass perspex or perspex box onto some slides and, a, and some um, other objects because we just wanted it to feel like people could be quite intimate. But the, the thing about the veils, I mean, you know, we, in the workshop, some of the some of these veils and experiments were quite complex. Like one was massive and it had like five people in it, and the the materiality was really kind of exciting. But um, we couldn't have all of them, and I think that this was just really we decided to go with something quite transparent um, and 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 simple in shape. Like the the archetypes are the squares, circles, um, diamonds triangles which kind of links a bit to my original research on Jungian and other kind of ideas of you know western philosophers and of course more modern ones trying to position the body and the self um, but I think the fun thing about these is that when you're at the show when you come along um, 
It's actually quite playful as well, and I think that's really important for my work. I mean, often there are themes which are quite dark and difficult and um, quite sad sometimes and shocking, and I think that you you need a healthy kind of dose of, of humour and colour sometimes to deal with that. I mean, we talked a lot about the veil and what it meant for religious and and um, and other reasons, but this is the point. I mean, some are circular. Yeah. Have you got a circle? I do have a circle. I'm trying to show everyone I'm wearing a circle. So people are walking through circles. I have a square one. Do you have to wear the veil? No. You don't have to. For you, you do, Anastasia. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, that's the point. I mean, the thing is... Sorry? I think also what my mind come unstuck. What's important as well about the veils is that um, even though they have so many connotations which some people might shy away from like Abu Ghraib or, or even KKK or elements of Islamophobia <laughs> or all these kind of things to do with veils, um, what's important and how it ties in the through thread with all of Brooke's works and also very much so with Justin's works is it disrupts the way in which other people can perceive each other's bodies and construct each other's bodies as loaded with identity and political connotations. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so it disrupts the way that bodies are read as texts. And so it's an offer to the audience that in the way that we've disrupted the archives and taken away the social hierarchies or taken away elements of Darwinism or taken away anthropological or gender issues or gender issues mm. or anything like that sexuality issues especially in Justin's work um, the veil is an invitation that they can also participate and have their body um, obscured or made complex for someone who's analysing and reading their identity mm. and I would say that's equally important for the viewer coming to see the exhibition but it's also embedded way back in the workshop so obviously these kind of conversations and explorations in terms of the material are happening at the workshop and then have a legacy ongoing into the way that the researchers respond with their next iteration of projects. So these things have a kind of life within the exhibition that responds importantly to the work but also much more importantly um, and in, in terms of running alongside, I guess, rather than importantly, running alongside at the same time feeds back into the research community that's developing, which then feeds back into the city. Mm. So, so that's absolutely crucial to and I think we're very interested in Design Hub too in um, creating situations where audiences are invited to question, invited to have a discussion with the exhibitors, but also with the Design Hub itself at the place of exhibition. So um, we're very conscious that when we put things out there for there to be an audience interaction, that we use you know, labels, we use conversation that our front of house staff know what the work's about, they know what it is that we're trying to do. Um, the, the, the front of house staff designer will be there to encourage you or talk to you about wearing a veil. Um, you know, we're, we're conscious that, it, that they are incredibly loaded objects and not just to sort of plonk them in the space. Uh, that there needs to be a narrative around them. Does anybody have any other questions? Or comments? Or queries? Yes. <laughs> Shall we end? Ta-da! Yes.
Yes, even the feeling I've found too um, in being in the space, wearing the veil, is the sense of the distance it puts me on Brooke's work, that I'm experiencing it through another work. Uh, and that's, that's been interesting too, not to sort of in a way see it clearly and, and, and what that is. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, they're both together. The chicken and the egg came together. Because it, because it, it, cause it, it is, it, it's about looking. So, that is a word that is, I see you, but it's also you see me. So, it's the crossing over, it's the boundary of who's looking at when and when your gaze shifts as well. So, you might walk down the street and someone's looking at you but then you're in another situation when you're looking at someone else and then your eyes might meet and I think that's what where the veil comes into it I mean the interesting thing about the tapestry of catching breath um, at the tapestry workshop and the veil is really very much linked in with the anima as well and I suppose there's ideas of colonialism and looking and being captured by the gaze and who and, and the sense of power and powerless um, because people have talked about that work going, why are you covering his face? But then all the politics in Australia especially has shifted over the last five years where it is a lot of fear about the representation of, where in the past it was about the visibility of. And so, it, you know, in some ways it's very much connected to that. Yeah. Are there any other questions? I think we're, we're almost running out of time, aren't we? Maybe time for one or two more? No? <laughs> well, certainly at the moment we are in the project rooms with Mama Alta, Justin and Brooke and we're really uh, testing and rehearsing and we're going to be really immersed in it over the next couple of days. The opening is on Friday night at 6 o'clock. You're so all welcome. Please uh, come and see the performance and uh, be immersed. Then we're here on Saturday as well for another performance at 6 to 7.30. Yes. Um, and so prior to that, sorry, at the Design Hub too from 2 o'clock, uh, Justin and Mama Alta will be performing and that will be followed by a talk with Brooke and Fleur and myself. So Friday, Saturday, jam-packed days and, and lots of opportunities to come and see the work. It runs right through to uh, February the 14th too. Um, so... On that note, we might say thank you yes, and good Yes, thank you, everyone here. Um, thank you, M Pavilion, for having us. Yes, to Naomi, Natalie and Robert and, of course, Brooke, Theodore, Mama Alto and Justin and to all of you for coming and, and enjoying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.